All right, we're about to have our Bible reading from Genesis now. However, before we do, I'd encourage you to take a moment to stretch the limbs a bit. Maybe stand up, you know, stomp your feet a bit, go and maybe go and grab that jumper that you've been thinking, you know what, I'm cold, I better go grab that. Off you go, dash and grab that. Put on the knee rug, uh, take a deep breath, get the blood flowing again because we're about to do business with God. We're going to sit under his word and we want to engage with what he says and listen carefully. So let's make sure we're fully awake and ready to listen. Okay. You ready? Get set. Because here it comes. See, today we begin our discovery adventure through the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. And when we read it like this, looking at the whole Bible, we find the Bible is one unified story by one author, one very big story by the biggest author of all time, one big author, God. The Bible is written, as we heard by the Holy Spirit, just that reading a moment ago, and it is God's big story of time, of history, of eternity, of creation, and most significant to us, perhaps, his dealings with us humans that he created as he expresses his will on earth as it is in heaven, like we prayed in the Lord's Prayer before. Each of the books within the Bible addresses different moments in time throughout this long story and simultaneously each book contributes to the unfolding drama of the kingdom of God. Now today's sermon passage is going to open up for us some of what was going on in what we'd call an epoch time period in God's story commonly known as creation. This is the, uh, the epoch or the, the time in history where the pattern of God's kingdom is set up for everyone to see and understand. And as I mentioned before, you'll find a link for, to an outline in the e-news or in the comments section below in the show notes. Uh, this outline will help you not only to know how long I'm going to speak for, which may be significant for you, but also will help you to follow along. It'll help you to take notes. It'll give you somewhere to record those questions and thoughts you've had. And also you'll find there at the back at the end a table. Now, we'll aim to fill in those blank spaces within that table for how the kingdom of God is described in this passage. Who are God's people? What is the place? And how does God rule his kingdom at this point in time? And in fact, it's those three details, God's people, God's place, God's rule, that we can discover in every part of God's story written. And those details will change in amazing ways week by week. We're going to see that develop and watch it very closely. Okay. Radio, that's the warm-up. You're ready to dive in. Let's pray and ask God's help as we come to hear from his word. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in the Bible. Please open our hearts and minds now to receive your word, to understand your story and where we fit within it. By your spirit, please work through your servant Josh as he brings it to us. Delight us today and change us with the good news of your unfailing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's hear from the Bible. Morning, church. My name's Josh and I'm part of the youth ministry at Bullock. Today we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 30. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. All right. Now imagine, imagine if you can, not being inside your house, but actually being out of lockdown and heading back to the cinema. This is what it would look like. You're going to watch a movie. Your ticket has been checked. You've found your cinema. You've squeezed into your seat. You've got your popcorn in one hand safely there and your oversized sweet drink in the other. And you settle back and look at the big screen, realizing that, phew, you've made it just in time. Well, the curtains now widen and the credits roll as the camera spans over a large city, weaving slowly among the buildings till it finds its target and zooms in on one building, one window, one person. And the music fades. The narrator gives, you know, some kind of time, date, place, description, maybe in the words at the bottom there, and our character does something. And in that very first few seconds, we learn everything we need to know. Who they are, where they came from, what they're doing here, who interacts with them, and what it's all about. Everything we know to get started. But it won't be everything we want to know. There's a heap that they don't tell us yet. But they do give us everything we need, that pattern to stay focused and to be able to follow the story from this point on. And gee, it's clever, isn't it? It's so very clever. It's storytelling at its best. Every popular movie, book and stage play all follow this same basic sequence and it, it works every time, doesn't it? Sure, they use different methods and they switch the order around occasionally, but all of them use the same technique and yet none of them give credit for where they got it from. Have you noticed that? It's never there at you know, the bottom of the screen. But the truth is, no one invented this sequence. No one discovered it by chance or by cleverness or even by trial and error. Rather, all of them borrowed it from the precise same place. All of them borrowed it from God's story. All of them borrowed it from the Bible. For God is the ultimate storyteller, and his story began with this sequence. We call it the creation story. We find it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Check it out with me. Page 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And bam, in just 10 words, in just 10 words, we have most of our information. What time is it? Well, it's the beginning. The setting is that the heavens and the earth, the main character, 
Well, it's God. And what has he just done? Well, he, he's created it. And by the end of chapter 2, all of the significant features of God's story are there in place for us. The setting, the plot, the characters, their relationships. In fact, in just two short chapters, everything is in place for what we need to continue. It's not everything we want to know. There's heaps we're not told yet. It's not even everything we might possibly yet need to know. We're going to need to learn all kinds of things along the way. More needs to be revealed for us. But for now, the pattern is set in place. And we have enough to be able to follow the story from this point on. And for all its cleverness, for all the way it's told, for all its brilliance, I reckon the most intriguing part here of all is the relationships that we are shown. For what's on display here is a kingdom. A kingdom full of relationships. A kingdom that's set up with relationships in a particular way. A kingdom set up by a very powerful king. It's not something he inherited from others or worked out by pulling things together that were already there, existing bits and pieces. No, this kingdom was set up by this king entirely from scratch, inventing every part of it, in fact, from nothing, and putting it together in a very deliberate order and with evident joy. And here at the beginning, he lays claim to the scope of the entire universe as his kingdom. Not just you know this world where we are, but every single part of it. And yet the centerpiece of this kingdom that he focuses in on is his relationship with us humans. So while we might prefer to hear about all kinds of other things like solar systems and dinosaurs, which would be fascinating to us and are interesting, and we've got all the freedom we like to go digging for that, we're not going to find it here in the Bible because in God's story about God's kingdom, he's interested in showing us and focusing our attention on just three things. Three things that affect every other thing. Three things which the entire creation is all bound up. Three things that are the focus of his kingdom. Those three things, God's people, God's place, God's rule. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And this pattern of relationships is the central feature of God's kingdom. And this pattern is what we then find on every page of the Bible that follows all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, some 1100 and something chapters later. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. Well, this is the pattern set up for us by God right here at the very beginning of the Bible. So let's see how he does it. Check it out with me. Following chapter 1, verse 1, we enter into the backstory of how God created this kingdom. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, and if we keep reading, we'll find it keeps going on. And God said, and God said, and God said. And as we read on through the chapter, we see this repeated pattern of God speaking, and through his words, just by speaking, creating 
all the basic elements of life that we know. It's orderly. It's clear. God knows what he's doing. There's no chaos here. God's in charge and his word is powerful. He's done everything that needs to be done by the end of the sixth day in terms of the things that we see. And so we read that beginning, uh, that as we get to the seventh day, with all the creative stuff done, he rested on the seventh day and he blessed it and made it holy. God no longer is setting up the pattern. No, that foundation work is now complete. The scene is set, the main characters are in place and we now know what kind of creation this is that God has made. It is good. It's good. In fact, at the end of the sixth day, he declares, no longer that it's good like he did at the end of every other day, but he gets to the end of the sixth day and he says, it's very good, very good. And what is this goodness? Well, he calls it good because it's all turned out precisely according to the words he spoke. His words have now achieved the exact purpose for which he sent them for which he spoke them and this is really important for us to notice for it tells us how God measures goodness it's all about whether things match his spoken word see unlike you and me unlike us God's measure of goodness is how things conform to his spoken word and if they don't conform they're not good. Okay, the heavens and the earth. God's place, complete. But what about his people and what about that rule? Well, that's what's described in our reading that we heard from Josh there, verses 26 to 30 of chapter 1. For having spoken into being the land animals in all their kind at the start of the sixth day and declared them good there in verse 25, you can see, at the end of the sixth day, at the end of it, not the start, but at the end, God speaks again and creates something new, something that completes his creative work, something that compels him now to declare the whole package very good. And this something was different to the animals. It was something of another kind altogether. Sure, it was put together on the same day as the animals, but it's a different kind. This time, it is the kind through which God intends to express his rule over his kingdom. What did he create? Well, we've heard the reading. We already know the answer. He, he created people, humans, humankind, mankind, or, or man, as our English Bibles put it there in verse 26, Friends, right here, this is where we find God's definition of who we are. Who, who are we? Who are you? Who am I? Where did we come from? What are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to do it? Well, none of us begin life knowing the answer to any of those questions. We don't start out knowing. We all find out later on. In fact, we don't even discover it for ourselves. Have you noticed that, that all of us are told by others? It's your parents that tell you what gender you are and then they name you and then they describe you and then they will give you words and tell you whether you're good or bad or ugly or pretty or fast or slow or smart or dumb. 
And, and then they foster certain habits in you that shape you for life. And that's long before we get any chance whatsoever or any power to shape anything for ourselves. No wonder we're all a bit, you know, a bit screwed up, a bit angry, a bit dissatisfied. Now, now not all of us, of course. I'm sure there is out there somewhere one well-adjusted, content, non-bitter, non-resentful human out there in the world somewhere. But for the rest of us, we all struggle, don't we? We all struggle somewhere between you know, occasional contentment and total dissatisfaction with our identity. And it's kind of like that till the day we die. And, and in fact, if that's not enough, the last insulting nail in our identity coffin is when someone gets up and stands up at our funeral and describes us for time memorial in words and ways that is entirely shaped by their impression of us and who we were. But like it or not, our identity, it's entirely shaped by others. So what does God think of us? How does he define us? Maybe it feels like just one more unwelcome voice to listen to. But when we do listen, well, I, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I know I was so wonderfully surprised and comforted when I first heard these words. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Let us make them like us. Oh, that's good. Let us make them like us. Although, hold on a moment. You know, pause right there. Who's he talking to? Let us make God in, let, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. I mean, is God a little bit schizophrenic here? Is he a little bit, you know, Gollum like uh, talking to himself as if he's more than one person? Well, no, it doesn't match the evidence before us of the order we read here. God must have had somebody else there with him, someone like him in nature, yet different from him in person. And we also saw a hint of this back there in verse 2 with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And we see it again there in verse 27 in that first poem recorded in the Bible where it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You see, God in his nature is a single kind, and yet his person is somehow more than one. Just as he made humanity as one kind of flesh, and yet with two distinct related persons in it, male and female. Now, clearly there's more to God than just some kind of supreme super being. There's something about God that's relational. There's something about him that's intrinsically relational. Just as he made us in his image as relational beings, it must be there. Now, we see nothing more of this information here in the creation account. But like any good story, as we know, small bits of information dropped in at the start 
are sure to be developed as we move later on. Now, we'll have to keep watch for this as we move through the Bible. Watch for it. See how it develops. And yet even now, being made in God's image as we are, focusing back on us, this, this puts us humans, both men and women, in the most privileged place in all creation. For everything else was made separate to God, and unlike God, but we humans, we were made to be relational beings in his image. We are God kind. God kind, kind of his kind. And this is what God thinks of us, but not just thinks of us, this is how he made us. This is the dignity he gives us, no matter what any other faulty, foolish human might have told you about yourself or the kinds of things we invent. Well, this here is how the God who made the universe values you and every human. Fearfully and wonderfully made, male and female, in his image, that's who we are. And that's something we should never forget. Oh, and just as helpful, just as helpful. He doesn't tell us who we are. He also tells us what we're supposed to do and, and where we're supposed to do it. There again, verse 26, God speaking says, So that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Is, is this too good to be true? Well, no, because in verse 28, on the other side of that poem, he repeats it. This is the bit that gets repeated. It says again, you know, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Not bad, eh? Now, there's a, jo there's a job description. There's a blessing, a commission we can live by. You know, in our society and as we you know, have children, we, we think it's good when a kid knows what they want to be when they grow up. You know, and, and especially we like it when they say they're going to be a champion of some sort, of one of those things that we like the most or something equally great in our eyes. I wonder what would happen if their ambitions matched the level of God's ambitions for us. Maybe it looks something like this, you know. So, Johnny, what are you going to do when you grow up? Oh, I'm going to rule the world according to God's command. I'm going to be fruitful and I'm going to increase in number. I'm going to fill the earth and I'm going to subdue it. Oh, uh, oh all right then. Uh, well, I, I, I guess we better teach you the gospel so your words can produce spiritual kids. Oh, and, and maybe later on when you, you get a bit older, maybe we'll help you find a wife to marry so that possibly you could produce some physical kids too. And yeah, uh, uh, we, we, we probably should teach you about your environment and the world and its people and how society functions best so you don't wreck it. Yes, yeah, that's what we'll do. Good on you, mate. Let's go. And guess what? That's precisely what happens in Genesis chapter 2. Yeah. 
Having set the scene in chapter 1, having put together the setting, the timing, the authority structure and the purpose in chapter 2, we zoom in again. Now we zoom in into one part of the scenery, into one garden, and we zoom in closer in on God's work in forming the one man and in forming the one garden. And then we zoom in closer and closer still onto the relationship that we have there between the three as God brings the man and the garden together. And we find there that God spoke to instruct the man what to do, to work and to care for the garden. And he teaches him about his environment and what he should do and what he shouldn't do, eating and not eating. And God brings the animals to the man so that he can rule over them, not by hurting them, but by naming them categorizing them and as he starts to do this and as it now starts to play out we encounter the very first problem the very first problem something's not good something's not good for the man in the creation that God has made something isn't yet so remember good is according to God's word and not good is not according to his word well here's a not good so something is not yet according to God's word as it was supposed to be And as the creator and sustainer of the world that's supposed to conform to his word, God now makes it his business to solve the problem. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, please notice here what the not good thing is, or actually what it isn't. It's not the restriction on the tree. Ah, That's not a problem. That's not a glitch. And neither is the problem sex. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the absolute lack of sex. That's not good. And God is the one who notices this. Not the man, he's clueless. And and why is this so important? Why does God notice this? Because when it comes to reproduction, the man doesn't have a suitable helper yet. For in the way that God made man, male humans cannot reproduce on their own. Men need help to be fruitful and increase in number. And that is not achieved with an animal, nor is it achieved with another man. Now sure, a man... Uh, on his own or even with a bunch of men together can do a good temporary job of ruling over the fish the birds the animals and the plants but for that work to last you know beyond a single generation for him to increase to fill the earth and subdue it well more people will be needed and at least one person different to him and man can't fix this by evolution or by technology now god steps in to solve the problem verse 21 So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Wow. Wow, out of the body of the man. So he doesn't create the woman from nothing like he created everything else, but out of the body of the man, God brings forth a woman. 
And by this method, God intimately binds the man and woman together to be as of one kind, setting the pattern forever and always to recognize one another as of one substance and yet as two different people, equal but different. He in need of her help to produce life and she in need of him to protect life. They can only succeed as God's image barriers if they stay together and work together. And so in verse 24, the foundational pattern that now undergirds all physical human thriving are laid down. We see it there, the man forsaking all others, setting aside all other relationships, all other things to be united to his wife as one flesh. And then majestically, the chapter concludes. And the final glimpse we receive here is a banner of hope for all future generations beyond this moment. Friends, the the glorious beauty, promise and treasure for the universe that is human sex in male-female marriage is displayed here in terms that are way beyond anything that we have or can ever experience in our shame-filled, secretive lives. For you and I, as we understand it, as we've experienced it, our our naked sexuality is an embarrassment. It's, It's a vulnerability. And it's a powerful weapon, all at the same time. But for them, them living openly under the rule of God, living under the blessing of God, it was nothing but peace and hope. See that that description there? Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame. Wow. What a beginning. What a beginning. What what a glorious start. What What a pattern to have laid down. What promise we have here. What possibility and potential as we move on beyond this. What... And what security there is there, what delight we have here in the kingdom of God as the first man and woman live in harmony together in God's garden under the rule of God's word where all things conform to him. Well, if we we were filling out our table here in chapter 2 of Genesis, then we would say God's people are one man and one woman. God's place in that chapter, chapter 2, is the Garden of Eden and God's rule is expressed as his word of command. However, the passage we read, of course, was chapter 1, verses 26 to 30. And that's before that zoom-in moment in chapter 2. See, in chapter 1, things are much broader. In chapter 1, God's people are listed there as male and female in his image. God's place for us is the whole world. God's rule is his word of blessing and commission. And so it is that right here, at the absolute beginning, we can see the pattern of the kingdom of God that he established. It's a pattern of beautiful relationships, all of them set up by God to work in ways that bring life and blessing to the whole universe that he has made. (sighs) 